Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. Here's the bottom line. You know, I mean, every uh, opportunity in life is a chance to learn. I delivered, did everything they needed me to do. But in the end, uh, there are certain things that you have no control over. I mean, every wall is a door. I like every that. opportunity, every time you get knocked down, Absolutely. it oh. opens you up to all sorts of other opportunities. Holly Robinson Pete is one of my favorite actresses. And the reason why, right, just for me, the reason why is when I was a kid and I would see her, I saw so much grace and so much beauty. She was very regal. She was a child star, right, in the late 80s and early 90s. You may remember Holly really getting her break on 21 Jump Street as Sergeant Judy Hoffs alongside this guy. You may have heard of him. His name is Johnny Depp or whatever, anyway. Uh, (laughs) And she has done so much. She's such an accomplished actress. And she is just truly a force for good. She advocates for those who can't advocate for themselves. And she's one of these people that... While I admired her from far away, when I finally got a chance to meet her and know her and talk with her, she lived up to every single one of my expectations. She has this amazing foundation, Holly Rod Foundation, where she works to help provide resources to families affected with autism as well as Parkinson's disease. And it's so amazing. I mean, her work is truly amazing. But more importantly, how she got to where she is, well, that's the story. That's why we have Holly Robinson Pete on The Brown Print today. You have those moments in your life when you get to meet somebody and you fan out. And the very first time that I met Holly Robinson Pete, I was fanning out. And not only did she live up to what I thought she would be in terms of watching her on television, she was truly a beautiful soul. And that is rare. She lived up to all of my expectations. Uh, Joining us now on The Brown Print is Holly Robinson-Pete. How are you? I'm so good. And I'm so happy to be able to talk to you because, you know, I miss you as a friend. And I'm so glad I'm able to watch all of the amazing work that you're doing. So I don't feel like I'm missing you, but I miss you. (laughs) Physically, because we can't go outside no more, right? I think that I want to go to just the beginning of it all. You are so talented. Um, You are an actress. You are a singer. I mean, you have a lot of, um, I guess, talents that people may not always know about, but I think it was in your DNA. And I want to go back to to Philadelphia, to Philly, uh, where you were born and and, and talk to me about um, your mother and your father um, and how in which you grew up in a household that was pretty much... Not necessarily Hollywood, but it was putting you in that realm. It was putting me in that realm, but it definitely didn't feel Hollywood because there was an authenticity. So I'll start with the fact that when I was five years old living in Philly and, you know, pretty middle class, very, very well integrated neighborhood. We had every kind of person in the rainbow living in our Mount Airy neighborhood of Philly. And uh, that's that was my, you know, I just saw people from all races, colors, creeds, religious backgrounds, and that's my foundation. So 
I think immediately as a young girl, I was able to remote to relate to anybody, right? I never looked at someone like, oh, I can't talk to that person because they don't look like me. So shout out to my mom and dad who had me in this great neighborhood, this great community. Uh, but when I was five, my daddy came home from New York and said he got this new show called Sesame Street. And so I was like, oh, okay, what is that? And he was like, yeah, it's 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 a... It takes place uh, on a brand, like in a neighborhood, like in a brownstone, like, and there's a fire hydrant and there's kids who look like you running around. I was like, mm-hmm, good luck with that. Anyway, so then 51 years later, obviously Sesame Street is still going on. <laughs> and it was a diverse, because back then, Carrie, this was a 69, eight-ish, okay? There was no diverse television for people, for children of color, certainly, barely for adults of color, but for children of color, we had like Captain Kangaroo mm. uh, and a couple other things. So Sesame Street was groundbreaking the diversity that it brought to TV. So my daddy is gorgeous. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. Just listen to what you just said. There was no television for black and brown kids. And your father was a part of a narrative that had to be started. And he helped conceptualize that. That's amazing. Oh, it is legacy. I am always sitting my kids down and telling them, do y'all know what your grandfather did? Because I think they just take it for granted. You know, these are Obama kids. They think, you know, they think, you know, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like some of these black kids are like, we had a black president. So uh, what's the problem? (laughs) But like, I'm like the legacy of your grandfather was groundbreaking. He was the first guy to walk out on the very first episode in 1969 and said, hi, everybody, I'm Gordon and welcome to Sesame Street. And this is Big Bird. And here is Oscar. He introduced all these iconic Muppets and characters to the world. So that was a big deal. And I I have clippings of him getting this job. And on the clippings, the headlines are like, Negro gets first uh, uh, big job in New York. Negro. And in, in like in the Philadelphia Inquirer paper. And so, wow, things were different in 68. Um, really different. Yeah. Like you can't like even believe that. I still have that clipping. I put it in a frame because it's like. Oh, that's by, by the way, that's shocking to me. I, I feel like Negro is one step away from colored. So it's like that's I mean, but that was in the paper and that's what it was. That's how blacks were referred to. And what they prefer to be called. That's correct at that at that time. So uh, so anyway, yes. Uh, so proud of his legacy as a, the first African-American man to be on a children's TV show. And he was a producer and he developed his own Muppet called Roosevelt Franklin. He was so important to putting together this iconic series. So absolutely so proud of that. The only problem was... My mom and dad were getting divorced. And the da- mm-hmm. my daddy was on TV. Now, I'm only five, Carrie. How did my daddy get inside that box? <laughs> I didn't know what that was. Like, I had a lot of issues with Sesame Street because he was working in New York and I didn't see him. It kept him away from me. So, yeah, everybody got to go up in my Philly neighborhood. All the kids in the neighborhood got to go up and be on there, except for me. Because my dad didn't want me to be in show business. He didn't like the whole, he thought if I got up there and saw those little lights and stuff and did a little scene with Ernie and Bert, that that might make me want to be in show business. And he was right. (laughs) And 
when did you get the showbiz bug, though? Like, even though your father tried to shield you from that, when did you feel like, oh, no, this is what I'm going to do? When I went up there and got on that Uncle camera and I had one line and I blew my one line, I was supposed to say hi, Gordon, but I kept saying hi, Daddy. <laughs> Very salty about the idea that, that my daddy was up there being everybody's daddy. And I was salty. I was a salty five-year-old boy. And there was a little girl, Carrie, that was Sally, right? She was sort of his daughter, but not really. And he was introducing her to everybody. And I was at home just like, Mm. <laughs> Turn, so I, would, I hated this girl. I hated Sally. Turns out Sally was played by an actress named Troy Byer, who ended up becoming a friend of mine years later. And we have the best laugh about how much I hate. She's like, your dad was like a dad to me. I said, I know. I didn't like it. <laughs> I'm sorry. You might need to add up my crazy loud laugh. Fast forward, not even fast forward. You moved to L.A., as you mentioned, personally, your parents are divorcing or divorced at this time. And how did you how did your acting career start to take shape? Because from my understanding, you were surrounded by a lot of well-known actors as of now when you moved to L.A. as a kid. Right. So moved to moved to L.A. in in the 70s, 74 ish, 75. I was only nine years old. I did not want to leave Philly. I loved everything about Philly. The culture, like remember, we had everybody in our neighborhood, and I was moving. I moved to all white Malibu, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay. And people wanted to touch my hair, and you know, just all that stuff when you're the only black kid in the school. And it was like, so my brother and I, my brother was like, oh no, I'm all about it. He's like, I'm in Malibu, and you know, this is all good. And he was like, I'm hanging out at Steve McQueen's house, and this one. Now, mind you, we have two nickels to rub together during this time because my mom was had the audacity to try to look for something better, and she we were allowed to stay at the home of a great actor named Cleavon Little, who was in an iconic movie called Blazing Saddles. So Cleavon, mm-hmm. Uncle Cle- where the white ladies at? Where are the white women at? <laughs> Yes, I did not know you knew that. Okay, now I love you even more. So Blazing Saddles. So we moved to this house on the beach. It's Uncle Cleavon's house. He was often Broadway doing this big Broadway musical. And he was a big star, but he was a friend of the family. He was like, go ahead, Dolores, take your kids there. Get on your feet. You guys could stay at my place. So we walked into this beach house and there was a VCR. We'd never seen one of those. And there's a big VHS tape in it. And it was Blazing Saddles. We were nine and 12. And we just kept watching that movie. We must watch it 40, 40 times, right? Anyway, long story short, Uncle Cleavon let us stay there. And it got us on our feet. My mom got a job as an agent's assistant. She snagged her first client, who was LeVar Burton, before Roots. And she was off and running, becoming one of the best, most prominent African-American female managers all through the 80s and 90s. So she's a badass. And uh, that was my role model. So that was it. That was the beginning. Um, and I didn't really act yet. But when I got to my little high school, there was these are kids that were in the high school. They weren't famous yet, but there was Rob Lowe. And there was Charlie Sheen and his brother, Emilio, Sean Penn. I've heard of them before. They've, I heard of them. They've worked. And then a new black girl came. and. It was D from What's Happening. Are you kidding? Danielle Spencer. I was like, there, you know, the rumors, another black girl's coming to the school. And I was like, who is it? Who is it? I was all excited, right? 
And it was Danielle Spencer, D from What's Happening. We became quick friends. She was a big star. Well, What's Happening was a huge sitcom. And she was, all Raj. And she was just so iconic and hilarious and amazing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so all of us were in the same class together. Jennifer Gray was in that class too. And it was just wild that we would all be in the same class. That's, cr- that's crazy. Yeah. Now, what high school was this? Well, it was called Malibu Park Junior High School at the time. It was a junior high. And now it's been a high school for years. But at that time, it was a junior high. And then we all went off to Santa Monica High School. But um, it was called Malibu Park Junior High School. And we were all in like between seventh, eighth and ninth grade. We were all in those classes. Now, what does that say? I, I don't know. Was it the culture of the time that everybody went on to have successful careers or had a successful career in acting? I don't know. I mean, like St. Elmo's Fire and all that. And then the Rat Pack, <laughs> Rat Pack movies came out. And I didn't really kick it in until like 21 Jump Street. I dabbled in it. Um, Carrie, I think, I don't know what it was in the water, and the ocean. I think it has something to do a little bit with nepotism because some of these guys' dads, like the Sean Penn's dad was a director. You know, obviously Martin Sheen was very popular. Um, but it was weird. All of us were kind of from the same class. And we're all still friends to this day. So shall I jump or is tell me if I, I don't want to miss, shall we jump to 21 Jump Street, how iconic that was and how there was nothing like that ever on television. And it was amazing. Wait, am I missing? What was first? Head of the class, 21 Jump Street. First of all, it wasn't on head of the class. That was Robin Givens. I'm a, I'm a- oh my God, y'all, girl, this black mistakes. I am so sorry. What? I just made a black Mistake. I hate when people do that with me and Jamel. I am so sorry. You are. You guys don't look anything alike. All black people don't look alike. No, that's true. But that you just to make you feel better. I get that. Everybody says that. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Um, Twenty One Jump Street <laughs> was first. We were okay. the first show on the Fox Network in nineteen eighty six. We started. We went up to Canada. Um, and how I, we want to hear something funny and ironic. When I auditioned for that for that TV show and I was just out of college and broke and needed a job and I auditioned for that show and the two girls, it came down between me and Troy Byer, the girl that played Sally in Sesame Street that I was so salty about. <laughs> I haven't let it go yet, Carrie. I haven't let it go. We, we, I'm like Troy. How is it we keep coming into each other's lives like this? Um, and we, laugh. I can't stand Sally. I cannot stand Sally. I love Troy. I couldn't stand Sally. Okay. And I got the part, um, went to Vancouver, British Columbia. I was only, you know, 20, 21-ish. A young guy named Johnny Depp was first job. You know, like he had done a little movie here or there. But, you know, he came on and we were in Canada. We were like the mod squad of Canada, right? We we were in a groundbreaking show, um, very iconic show. And that was... Amazing. It was like such heavy. Was but was it a how was it? How was it being a brown person on air in Canada or on TV and acting with those group of people? Did they when you said you guys were a mod squad, did they love and respect you? Did they appreciate you? Stephen J. Cannell, who is the the executive producer and the creator of Jump Street, his whole concept was that it'd be a multicultural TV show. So I felt Sorry. respected. The storylines never felt black. 
female storylines. They always felt like, you know, I'm just a woman acting. And that was a really interesting time on TV because I believe like the only other really prominent black roles that were on TV was like, I think Jasmine Guy was in a different world at the time. Um, Olivia Brown icon was on Miami Vice and maybe one or two others, but there really weren't very many. So I was super proud of the role of Judy Hoffs because I was playing a cop, but she was very compassionate. She was your every, you know, your, your girl next door, best friend, but she was rough, bad. Like she did what she had to do. She was tough. And um, it was just an awesome role. It was just a great role to be playing. It was not only was it a great role for you to play, it was so important for people who look like who were young like me to see you do that in such a powerful way. Like, I don't even think you've you've had this and you just talked about that. You grew up uh, where you were exposed to all different types of backgrounds. But I never said, okay, black girl, black role. I said, beautiful woman. She just happens to be black and she has a wonderful way about herself. That was just pleasing and unheard of. You understand what I'm saying? Like, like that, 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 that mainstream, some people say it's bad, but it was really a beautiful thing because we knew you was black, but it was just beautiful to see that I appreciated you as a beautiful woman first. And then obviously drawn to you second, because you were black. Well, thank you. Because when I grew up, I really only saw Diane Carroll as Julia. And that made me want to be on TV. Like I thought, okay, it's possible. I can be on TV because this woman can, she can front a show, be number one on the call sheet. And I've had, thank God, many great conversations with her. And she's given me so much um, advice about, about being a number one and being, and, you know, being number one on the call sheet when you're a black woman is very, you have to hold up such standards and you have to really not mess up for everybody else. But I appreciated the role of Judy Hoffs because it was almost like a colorless role. And you're right. People mm-hmm. related to Judy before they thought, oh, it's a black woman. And then you had Dustin, who was an Asian man, Vietnamese. And you had Peter and then Johnny. And then it's just like all the storylines. It was just a dope show. And I'm so proud of it. And it still holds up to this day. And that launched me so that when I went to my next roles, I didn't feel like I got stereotyped. I just felt like, OK, we've already seen this girl. You never And then they're like, now, can you do comedy? Are you a funny person? And I had to jump through hoops, literally, pardon the pun, uh, to, I had to jump to hang with Mr. Cooper. Like I had to, (laughs) I had to audition my butt off. What does that mean? What does that entail? How did it look? Oh my gosh. Well, cause they didn't think, I, I think I'm a naturally funny person, but I, I was playing this serious role on Jump Street. She was not, Judy was serious. So I had to now let people know that I could play comedy. So Mark Curry and I would be in these chemistry reads together and we would do all these, you know, they had to see me be funny. So I had to get that comedy timing and all of that. And I was able to do that. And thank God, because I loved working on Cooper. That was just so much fun to this day. And I just feel like... You know, it's another iconic TV series that people know me from. And that's cool to have, like, not one, but at least two of those. No, you listen. Can I can I share some personal stories about our time together? Um, And you can tell me if you want these in or out of the show. But when you talk about being iconic. So for the folks at home who are listening, uh, when I started working at ESPN, that's when I really got to know Holly. And we would chat over, you know, the Twitter, the socials. But then one time we went to a Super Bowl event together. I don't I think maybe it was Arizona. Um, And for her to be like, it's cool to be iconic. 
Holly is more than iconic. When I tell you these 12-year-old athletes were like falling all over themselves to talk to her because they was like, you know what? Hi, can I talk to you? They had all the they had all the lines down for you. And I was like, oh, look at you. Get not a young man. They loved you. You do a show that people grow up on. You know, I've had some pretty iconic uh, superstar athletes tell me, uh, yeah, I used to watch you all the time on TGIF. And then you realize how how old you are. Then all of a sudden it goes from being a compliment to going, wait, hold on a second. If you're only 25, what does that make me? TGIF was must-see TV. There's nothing like it. And and back in the day when the intros of the shows had theme songs, you would just sing along. It was just amazing. Remember? Remember then? And thank you for mentioning theme songs because that is pretty much the beginning and the end of my recording career. Um, okay. I, <laughs> I uh, recorded the theme song for 21 Jump Street. So that was me. A lot of people still don't know that was me singing. Um, yeah. And then when I got to Cooper... The irony was um, we had one of the best theme songs ever in the first season because I sang it with En Vogue and Don Lewis. We had that great mm-hmm. Cooper. Mm-hmm. And then I met my bestest friend in the world, Terry Ellis, who's also my doppelganger by working with her mm-hmm. and En Vogue, shooting that TV series opening. Yeah, we used to have great TV uh, theme songs that we don't have anymore. It kind of It kind of sucks. Yeah, but being a part of that, while your legacy is so strong, and I think sometimes, I know for me, just when I I forget because time is so quick and and we all get caught up in our own thing, but you need your roses. You know, you need to know that you meant a lot and that you really transformed the face of television for Black women because it was colorless and it was something that was regal. You were our regal, Diane, for me, Diane Carroll. You were very always elegant. And to me, I think that's so important to have because those roles are few and far, you know, and those people more specifically don't come along. And so we get to see you now in this way. And you you guys, she is so funny, which is why I think it's crazy. You had to interview, I mean, or audition rather, so many times. That's crazy because you are naturally hilarious. Just silly, like funny. If there's, difference, there's a difference between naturally hilarious and being sitcom hilarious because there's a cadence oh. with sitcom and there are a couple of sitcom rules. It's uh. like the rules of three. And, you know, saying you get three choices to say something. And then the last one is the joke. Like there is a muscle in sitcom. And then the timing, especially when you shoot it in front of a live audience. And that timing and that energy um, is is a muscle. So I I was able the first season of Cooper, I I got through it. But second, third, fourth and fifth, I, I, I was like, okay, I got this down. And the irony is then, you know, you have to keep going back and sort of proving yourself. But I have really loved that genre of comedy, especially multi-camera and and sitcom and multi-camera, which means the live in front of a studio audience. When you see when you see young young women coming up of color and they're and they're trying to be in that space that you that you've owned for so long, is there um, advice that you give them, or is there a uh, a, a, not necessarily would give them because I don't know I'm pretty sure they reach out to you, but would you give advice to someone who wants to live in the space in which you live? Yeah. Coming into the business. Always be nice to the crew. That that's that's mm. the number one thing my mom told me, because they're the ones that go from show to show. So your reputation is how you treat people. Mm. And the concept of coming onto a show and being disrespectful to the crew who gets there earlier than you, stays later and makes less. 
So I always remember, be good to the crew, they'll be good to you. And then that continues that reputation as you go on to work. They'll say, you know, then I, like just recently I joined a new show and I'm on the show or not a new show, but I'm the new, I'm the rookie on the show in their fifth season. And I was like, and they, oh, hey, I worked with you on Cooper. Oh, hey, I was the props guy. And so, and you have these good relationships and you put that goodwill out there and it comes back to you. And so this is, you know, mm -hmm. my 35th or 36th year in the business. And be, I think I'm still here because I treated people well. And so I'm always telling mm. these, these younger black dresses, because, you know, you got to talk to them. I'm always like, listen, y'all, just don't roll up there being raggedy. Know your stuff. Be professional. Be nice to everyone. Smile. Always say good morning when you walk into the hair and makeup trailer. Um and don't burn any bridges because that hair and makeup person might be your producer or boss in five, 10 years. That's powerful advice. And that is how you move. I also want to know, how are you able to be, because there are people who I know who are in this business, your business, and they, it's hard for them to be friends with everybody. Like, I feel like, you know, some of everybody and they all have that same respect for you and that same adoration and that same love. Is that something that you purposefully work on? And I'm not even just referring to people on a crew, but I'm all like, remember that time we went to dinner and it was okay. Again, another story, story time. Holly and I were going to dinner. We were going to dinner and Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys was there. And she was like, hold on one second. And she, she went to just, he was there with his wife to have dinner. She went to say something. Next thing I know we were eating dinner with Jerry Jones. I was like, well, how, how did that happen? I thought well, you and I were just... Didn't he pay for dinner, Carrie? I feel like he did. He did. Yes. Yes. I, do Remember, you Remember, I was, you know, I, I'm also a, a former football wife, right? So yes, I spent, right. you know, Rodney was quarterback for 16 years. I was there for 10-ish of them. Uh, and so I would always be the quarterback's wife and have to, you know, rub elbows with ownership and and be sort of a stateswoman. And you got to kind of be a first lady in a, in a way. Um, and so uh, we had played for the Cowboys. But also, I think when we went to dinner, it was a little awkward because I think they had just fired my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law was the running backs coach. <laughs> oh, yes. He's, he was the running backs coach. <laughs> right. Now, fast forward all these years later, he's now rehired and working with Jerry Jones again. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but But so you have to be diplomatic, right? And so when I saw him... And we started talking to him. He was very affable, right? And he was very, very nice to us. Um, and then I feel like he tried to grab something from your plate or something. I feel like he... Oh, oh no, I have... I, I know the whole story and I'm about to tell it. You remember when we were at a very famous restaurant in Beverly Hills where fancy people go and he was with his wife and we were all sitting there and he comes to this restaurant because he loves their duck tacos. Remember that? And and he wanted to make them by hand for us. And he took he took the meat and he took the taco shell and wrapped it up with his bare hands and offered me a bite first. And you looked dead at me like you about to you about to eat a duck taco from this man's bare hands. And I took a bite and you were like, yum. <laughs> 
my gosh, Carrie. That was such a funny moment. I'll never forget that night. But the point is, is that you have that lasting effect on people. And so as a as a black actress in Hollywood, how do you do you just have Jenna Saquad? Do you just have that that it factor? How does that work? I think it goes back to that Mount, those Mount Airy days outside of Philly, being able to be in a room with anybody. Uh, our neighbors mm. were Jewish and we had Japanese immigrants over here. And then these guys and then black folks here. It was just a little, it was a perfect melting pot neighborhood. And everybody was in my class. And I just never felt like people were different from me. And so I was always able to just relate to everybody in a room. And then, of course, I'm Dolores Robinson's daughter. So I do have that. And she knows everybody and no one has a more engaging personality than my mom. And so I watched her and I watched her, you know, her cultivate these, this, this relationships, these relationships that just kept her, carried her from, you know, gig to gig and getting more clients. And she ended up, you know, managing everybody from Jada Pinkett Smith to Wesley Snipes and Michael Clark Duncan and, and Martin Sheen, Pierce Brosnan. I mean, she, Mm -hmm. she had a very diverse crew of people that she managed. And um, I got to be around all that. Like I had a front row seat Mm. to watch all of that. And when those actors or other actors would would mess up or not do something right, my mom would say, see, if you decide to do this, meaning acting, don't do that. And (laughs) I would see behind the scenes her sort of troubleshooting her clients' issues. And I'll be like, wow. So I think I learned a lot from that, which isn't to say I haven't made mistakes. Uh, along the way. But I think my overall energy is to keep those relationships tight. Don't burn bridges. And there were moments when I wanted to, Mm -hmm. you know, where I could have, I could have blown a whole place up, but I didn't. And I didn't do it purposefully because I wanted to continue to work and have great experiences in this town. Any regrets? Any anybody who deserves some some old school ether, like if you had a chance to go back, you'd blow them up if you could. And you don't have to be specific, but is there any regrets for not always speaking out against the bad cop? I took the high road. I went. I I Michelle Obama them. I went high uh, when they went low, and there were some times where I wish I could have gone a little bit lower. You know, <laughs> just just a just a scooch lower. But in the end, when I look think back. And I go, okay, look where you are now. And you're still working and you're making movies and you're joined a new show. And um, there's a lot of full circle moments I'm experiencing right now. And I think had I blown to join up, I wouldn't be here right now. Mm, I love it. I, I disagree, but I love it because you are too talented for that. I have to ask this then, because you talk about your longevity in this business and you have you are always working. You are never not working, hustling, EPing something. Um, you just joined another show. You currently have two movies out and you've been I think you've been spending more time up north than you've been here. Talk to me about all the projects you're working on right now. So I, I spent two months in Canada, British Columbia which ironically is exactly where I started my career with Jump Street. So that spot is everything to me. That just, I just, when I'm there, the kids were like, if you tell us one more story about you in your 20s when you were up here, I'm like, just be quiet and let mama live and let me be great. <laughs> raggedy kids. They're always making fun of me telling these you, you know how fine your mama was? Do you know what your mama used to do? How fine I was? Do you know your mama was something in the 90s? Stop hating on me. So... 
I had so much fun, you know, being up there. And I got to bring my kids this time, right? I brought my kids. I quarantined with them. I brought my dogs. So they were a little reluctant to come up, but they were able to join a gym up there. Girl, we went to the movies. You should have seen us at the movies. You would have thought we were at, I mean, we were in the movie theater like, we're in the movies. And that's because Canada has done everything right. In March, when when they had these cases, they shut everything down hard. They mandated masks. They did everything. And then now, you know, they have a little uptick, but I mean, like, compared to us, nothing. Um, and so when they shut everything down, they immediately were thinking about how to open everything back up and certainly production because there's so much production going on up there, so much. And so how do they do that safely? And so everyone's fine and they figured that out. So I went up, banged out two movies, but we, we had to quarantine hard, not that little raggedy little quarantine we do but i mean like where the government is basically keeping track of you making sure you do not come out of your house and so we did that and then took our test passed went to set and started working and then we had covid protocols i mean in one of my movies the christmas doctor which just i love this movie because i executive produced it and co-executive produced it with al roker and and that was really cool. And it came out November 15th, right? It, it, it's going to re-air so many times. And so please, just okay. all you got to do is check to see, put it in and check Google it because it'll you'll see the re-airings. But I love this movie because it was a it was an homage to frontline doctors and nurses everywhere. I play in a, lo- a locum tenens mm-hmm. doctor. They fill in for other doctors and they make sure that other doctors can go do things like take leave of absence or whatever. But they move all around the world. And she was also a military doctor and had a patient in the military in Afghanistan who she wasn't able to let go of that she couldn't save. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are a lot of layers and the script was really good. And I just loved it because I got a chance to pitch it cast it. I brought in this fine, fine brother. I saw him. I saw him on your Instagram. He cute. He real cute. He single? No, he's not single. But oh, okay. uh, back, no. back to the story. But Sorry, anyway, my bad. Go ahead. His name is Adrian <laughs> Holmes. <laughs> and he is, carry on. And he is lovely. <laughs> he is like one of those guys that, you know, he's not just gorgeous, but he's a really strong actor and he just lit the screen up. And we had to do these kissing scenes. You know, kissing on TV is already unromantic. Right. But when you factor in COVID protocol with all this little concoctions and peroxide we had to gargle with for 20 seconds and then we had spit buckets and it was so unsexy, like all of wow. it. And when wow. I saw it, I was like, I called Adrian. I said, wow, like we are really, really good because we made that kiss look hot and that kiss was not Mm -hmm. hot. So uh, we loved all of that. And the movie came out great. I was so proud of it. So make sure everybody checks that out. And then I then I shot Christmas in Evergreen, which is the fourth installment of the Christmas in Evergreen series of movies. I play Mayor Michelle. I was modeling my my character after a, a lot of our beautiful black female mayors around the country. Um, yeah, it was so dope to be able to do that. And Evergreen is a fictional town in Vermont. It's very diverse and it's just, uh, where Christmas is done right. Like people come to Evergreen for how we do Christmas. Um, they, when we last see Mayor Michelle in the last Christmas in Evergreen movie, she was proposed to, 
And uh, then now this new movie is about planning things and making sure everything happens and there's a sense of community. So love Christmas in Evergreen. That comes on December 5th. I love this time of year because this is the time of year, especially when you it's watching Hallmark, you get to see all your favorite Christmas movies. And even if they're not your favorite, you'd love them. You just It's a good time of year to be sitting in the house, have some hot cocoa, maybe with a little bit of liquor in it if you want, a little whiskey, a little bourbon, whatever you like, and just sit back and relax. I love that. I love that. I love you, by the way. I have to let you go, but I know that there are a couple of things that are near and dear to your heart. And I have been a part of a few. Um, and I watch how hard you work for your foundation and for your son. I love it. You're just a wonderful mommy. You're, I don't know how you do all that. Like, I have moments of not feeling like a good mom, but today I feel like a good mom. So I'm going to claim that. I'm going to own are, that today, Carrie Champion. <laughs> You are a great mom. And I want you to talk about Holly Rod because I feel like that foundation is um, imperative. And it went from just an ideal for people who really want to start a foundation and do something amazing and how you've been able to make it really work into something that is mega and powerful and a must see event or must attend event. Well, first of all, if it doesn't work. Uh, the foundations don't work or raising funds don't work if you don't have friends who support you. So shout out to you and everybody else listening who has been supportive of Holly Rod Foundation. We started this foundation over 23, four-ish years ago because my dad had Parkinson's disease. And remember I mentioned my dad earlier was the original Gordon in Sesame Street. He went on to write and produce Sanford and Son and 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 um, the Waltons and a lot of iconic shows, Eight is Enough. And he was an amazing, brilliant man, but he got Parkinson's disease in his 40s. Um, and that's mm. a really young, young onset Parkinson's. And so Rodney and I started this nonprofit to help other families impacted by Parkinson's, you know, just really bridge the gap to get their meds. Because with Parkinson's, you have to get these meds. They're very expensive. It's considered a pre-existing condition. You know what our healthcare is like. And so we were helping people bridge that gap and supporting families. So, um, and then like about five years into Holly Rod, uh, our son, RJ, gets diagnosed with autism. And what we know about mm. autism is that it's like Parkinson's, it's very expensive and very difficult to, to manage and to have. So, and also I was, I knew a lot of celebrities who had kids with autism, but none of them really were comfortable talking about it publicly. And that is totally okay, Carrie. I happen to be a loquacious, loud mouth type of girl. And I, mm -hmm. I speak my piece and you know I do. Um, and I, I felt like that was, I was a good fit to be an autism advocate. And so I wanted people mm. to know who RJ was and I wanted people to see RJ um, and see autism and see how it manifests itself and how a family would gather around and support a young man, especially a young black man with autism. Um, and so Holly Rod expanded its mission to support autism and families impacted by autism. We've done a lot of things over the last 20 so years. But right now, our, our, our one of our main missions is supporting employment for this community. My RJ was told at three years old, Carrie, you know this story very well, all these things that he would never do, we call it the never day. And I wanted to show other families impacted by autism, you get this diagnosis today and somebody sits in front of you and tells you what your son at three or four is never going to do in his future, you tell them to kiss your whatever color your ass is, okay? Mm -hmm. Because... This is why RJ is successful today, because we did not take no for an answer. And so we were told he would never do a thousand million things. But one of the things they said he would never do is have meaningful employment. So fast forward to 2020, and not only does he have meaningful employment with the Los Angeles Dodgers as a clubhouse attendant, but he's also got a World Series ring coming his way. 
So this is amazing, right? Okay, it's got the chills. Oh my gosh. So this is dope, right? But I wanted people to see mm -hmm. that. So we're working alongside other organizations, Hollyrod Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, Best Buddies, Special Olympics, Autism Speaks, and this great campaign called Delivering Jobs. So I'll tell everybody to go check out deliveringjobs.org and see what we're working on. Because these, I talked to Dave Roberts the other day, manager of the Dodgers. And he was like, Holly, you keep thanking me for hiring RJ. But I'm telling you, RJ lifts our clubhouse. He gives us mm. the gift of his presence and his energy. He's always in a good mood. And, um, and so these kids can not only be great employees, but they could be your best employee. He's never late. Mm -hmm. It has given him confidence. It has given him friends. He never had any friends growing up. And now he has a whole dugout club clubhouse full of friends. So I use RJ as an example. We had the resources to get him what he needed, but other families do not. And that's what I'm really excited about that Holly Rod's working on now. Sorry, First I did a little filibuster. Sorry about that. You didn't. You are absolutely Amazing. I've seen RJ in real life live, thrive. You take him everywhere, as you say. And he is such a wonderful young man. I am so, I'm not like proud of you, like parent proud, but I'm just so proud of what you represent. It's always so refreshing to meet, like I said, at the very beginning of this podcast, The Real Deal. Oh, sis, thank you, you so much. I feel the same way as you. And I, I love watching everything you do. You are such an inspiration. Uh, philanthropically, with your podcast, with your shows, with your outspokenness and your <sighs> desire to be heard and like, unrelentless. I, you know, I wish I had a little bit more of that, Carrie Champion. So that's where you. No, no, no. Uh, while I'm listening to you, I was like, maybe I should dial it down a bit. No, <laughs> no, because you, you, you stand in your truth, and that's what we have to do. You know, we have to do that, and that's yeah. so inspirational. So thank you for being you. And you know, I love talking to you. It's so much fun and we have to do this more. We need to do this again with cocktails. Yeah, I would like to do it in person. I take a COVID test every two weeks. So let me invite me to your house. Holly Robinson, Pete, you are a American treasure. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for being here on The Brown Print. Have a great day. So yes, um, I hope your biggest takeaway was that Jerry Jones made Holly Robinson, Pete and Carrie Champion eat duck tacos from his fingers and we couldn't say no. I mean, could you say no? I mean, I really wouldn't have said no. I hope that wasn't your biggest takeaway. Um, <laughs> thinking back on all she said, especially working in a business where you have to rely on others and be around many people, she said she believes her career has had so much longevity because she's always kind to the crew. Now, the crew could be hair and makeup. It could be the floor crew. It could be your stage manager. It's the people who work behind the scenes who work the hardest to help you look great that you have to really, truly appreciate. And with that being said, I got to say, shout out to Matt, Alfred, Cal. I love y'all because I know I get all y'all nerves. They're my crew for this podcast. The other takeaway that I had was that she, to me, how, and this is not in a disrespectful way, but has a very colorless approach, meaning you just see a beautiful woman. You see a woman who has a sense of um, self that is, beyond her color, but more about her just being a human, her humanity. And she said she thinks the reason why she's able to relate to everyone is because she grew up in a very diverse neighborhood. She said she just saw people for who they were. Um, it does help that her father was Gordon on Sesame Street. I'm pretty sure people wanted to be her friend. But the reality is, is that we're, we're more alike than we're different. 
humanity should always be put first. And when I see her, I see her humanity. And to that end, my third takeaway is that family matters most to her. She's a great mom. She is a loving wife. She has a career. And sometimes people will say you can't have them all. But she does do it in a way that lets you know her family matters most. And I think that is so wonderful and often lost, especially with women in this business. They make you think you can have one or the other. And as one of my producers said, that's just so sexist and I hate it. Oh, well, I hate it too, damn it. And I'm so grateful for women like Holly Robinson-Pete who remind us that at the end of the day, when you go home from a long day of work, all that matters is those that love you the most. And oftentimes it's your family. So to Holly Robinson-Pete, thank you so much for being on The Brown Print. Uh, I appreciate you, my friend. And for the folks who are listening, I appreciate you too. Talk to you guys next week. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Haha, <laughs> kidding, kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.